Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you can find out more information about who we are and where we are headed as a church. Once again, thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. I want to begin this morning by listing some characteristics of a city. And I want you to see if you can guess what city I am describing. All right? Here's characteristic number one. It's a wealthy city with a booming residential market featuring highly upgraded multi-story upper middle class homes. There's number one. Number two, it's a large, diverse population in the city, and it's known as a melting pot of nations and ethnic groups. Number three, it's known, it's a city that's known for its large shows and massive shopping areas. Think you're figuring it out? Number four, it's a city that contains several stadiums and it's known as the place to be for the biggest races and sport fighting. Number five. It has a reputation of being offensively commercial and materialistic. It's located at the intersection of major commerce routes that provide easy access to, uh, in every direction to other major cities. Number seven. You think you know where we're going? This city has a preoccupation with sex that is witnessed by its large sexually explicit displays at every major intersection in the city. I think you know where we're going. Number eight, prostitution and gambling dominate the city's center. All right, what city am I talking about? See, I know you want to say Las Vegas so bad, right? But actually, Las Vegas is not the right answer. As a matter of fact, every one of the statistics that I just shared with you were not found in the demographic study produced by the Las Vegas Better Business Bureau. These were statistics found in Baker's Encyclopedia of the Bible describing a real city in the first century. It's not Las Vegas. It's the city of Ephesus. All of these demographic stats that I've given you are all true about the first century city known as Ephesus. Let me share with you a couple of other interesting things that relates to Las Vegas as, it, as you look at Ephesus. Ephesus was widely known for two major things. You know what it was? Immorality and religion. Think about it. If you know Las Vegas history, you know Las Vegas was founded 
by the, by the religion of Mormonism. That's where our city began as a fort for the Mormon religion. And then our city has largely been shaped by the immorality of the mob. Ephesus was a global city. It was known all over the world for its immorality, in particular, its large pagan temples that also served as houses of prostitution. The largest of them was the temple set aside to the goddess, the, the goddess, uh, Greek goddess Diana. It was so, such a massive architectural feature that this particular temple was named one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. One other interesting note about Ephesus is Christianity was viewed as a threat to the primary industry of Ephesus, which was idol worship and the commerce that it produced. So Christianity was looked at as something that was in opposition to the city and it thriving financially. You say, okay, pastor, we get it. Ephesus and Las Vegas have a lot in common. What's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. This weekend, we're beginning a study that's going to carry us for the next several months, probably right out of a year. We'll have a couple of breaks in there. But for about the next year, we're going to be studying through a letter. And it's a letter that was written to Christians living in Ephesus, teaching them how to faithfully follow Jesus in the midst of a mega city that was overwhelmingly non Christian. I think oftentimes we think about the Bible this way. We think, you know, the Bible is written a long time ago. It really doesn't relate to where I'm living today. But let me just say, you cannot get more applicable than this letter for us living in, in, in Las Vegas today trying to follow Jesus. I've actually had the privilege of going to the, the site where Ephesus has been archaeologically discovered. They've unearthed so much of Ephesus, this original city still remains. I've stood in one of those theaters that sat thousands of people. It was actually the theater where they drug Paul out of the theater there and, and began to persecute him. I've, I've seen the front of one of these temples that were used. I've seen the, 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 the graphic designs that were used in the city to point people to these areas of immorality. Listen, I know a lot has changed in the last 2,000 years, but there's a whole lot about who we are as human beings that hadn't changed at all. And so as we walk through this letter of Ephesus together, there is so much for us to glean living as a Christian minority in a city that is large and by, and by most respects, not a Christian City. So we're going to open today. If you got your Bible, open to Eph uh, the book of Ephesians. It's it's found in the New Testament. Go to chapter one. If you're looking for where this letter is in the New Testament, get past the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then you get to Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Then you'll see Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. That's where this little letter is, right there. And we're going to read just the opening of this letter and draw some foundational truths that will help us as we navigate this journey together. So Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, here's what the writer says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus... By the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
what you read here is what would have been a typical introduction to any letter written in this time period. When a writer in this time period was writing a letter, they would always introduce themselves. Paul says, hey, this is Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And then he would make known who the letter was to. And so Paul says, this is written to the saints who are at Ephesus and to those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And then he closes with this very common Christian greeting in this time period, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Out of this simple introduction, I want to give you two foundational truths that will help us as we navigate through this letter. Here's the first one. This letter can be trusted. It can be trusted. Maybe you're here today and you would say, Pastor, how can a letter written over 2,000 years ago, be trusted for me today to be applicable and relevant to where I'm living. How can I trust this? Well, I'm so glad you asked the question. The reason you can trust this is because of who wrote it. Paul opens this letter by declaring himself to be the author, but notice how he introduces himself. Paul, an apostle, of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, there were a lot of ways Paul could have opened this letter. For example, we learn from the book of Acts. Do you know where the church at Ephesus came from? Paul, on his first missionary journey, was the first one to visit the city of Ephesus. He was the first one to take the gospel there. On his second missionary journey, we read about in the book of Acts, Paul is the one who started the church in Ephesus. He planted this church. He took the gospel there. And Acts 19 and 20 says before he left, he discipled and raised up all the leaders. As a matter of fact, Paul placed one of his closest disciples, a man named Timothy, Timothy became the pastor of the church at Ephesus when Paul left. So Paul planted the church. Paul took the gospel to the city. Paul raised up the leadership. Paul led their pastor to Christ. Paul trained their pastor. Paul could have opened this letter by saying, hey, you guys need to listen to what I'm about to write to you because I'm the one that brought the gospel to Ephesus. I'm the one that planted the church. I'm the one that established your leadership. But that's not at all how Paul begins. Paul could have also opened this letter by introducing himself and sharing all of his missionary accomplishments since he'd left Ephesus. You see, after Paul left Ephesus, he went on and finished his second missionary journey. Then he went on a third missionary journey. Paul didn't just plant the church at Ephesus. Paul had planted all kinds of churches. Paul had taken the gospel to so many different cities. Paul had taken the gospel now to different continents Paul could have written this letter and said, hey, you need to listen to what I have to say because, man, I have been, I've been busy joining in the mission of God locally and globally, and God has done supernatural things through my life. But that's, that's not how Paul begins the letter. To convince them that it was an authoritative letter that they needed to, to, to read, another way Paul could have introduced it is Paul could have begun to share with them about his own personal sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. Do you know where Paul is now when he was writing this letter? Years after planting the church at Ephesus. Do you know where he was when he wrote the letter? He was in prison in Rome. 
having been put in prison to await his execution for the proclamation of the gospel in cities and countries all over the known world. Paul could have written a letter and said, hey, you guys need to listen to what I'm about to tell you because nobody has sacrificed like I've sacrificed for the sake of the gospel. Nobody has given up what I've given up. I'm about to die for Christ. And these are some of my final words that I want you to hear. And yet Paul doesn't use any of that. Now, if it had been you or me, right, (laughs) we'd have had T-shirts printed up with all that stuff on it. I mean, this would have been the bio that we sent to tell them why they need to read this letter, right? I mean, look at all this stuff that I've done. And yet Paul doesn't mention any of that. Here's what he says. Paul, an apostle by the will of God. That simple statement was to carry the weight. What is an apostle? Well, the term apostle is used throughout the New Testament, and it's used primarily in two ways. The word apostle comes from a Greek word that means to commission and send out. So in one sense, throughout the New Testament, you'll find this word apostle used to describe anyone commissioned and sent out as a missionary. There are several people referred to throughout the New Testament as apostles who were just commissioned and sent out. In one sense, we just finished the summer. We're here at the end of the summer. School year's about to begin. Over the summer, we sent out nine or ten teams. We call them go-time teams from our church. And they went to different cities and countries all over the world, about a hundred people. We commissioned them and we sent them out. In that sense of the word, all of them were fulfilling an apostolic ministry, being commissioned and sent out to accomplish the mission of God. But that's not the way the word apostle is being used here by Paul. When Paul used the word apostle here, he was referring to the second primary usage of apostle, and that is referring to a small group of highly honored believers with a special office as God's representatives after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. After Jesus died and rose again and ascended back to heaven, there were some apostles that had been set apart, and these apostles, all of them, here's what made them stand out. They had been personally enlisted by Jesus himself with a personal invitation. Most of them, all of them but Paul, were a part of these, the, 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 the original 12 followers of Jesus. But Paul had his own personal encounter with Christ. We read about it in Acts chapter 9. Jesus appeared to Paul. Jesus called Paul. The Bible tells us that in Arabia, Jesus spent time with Paul, and he poured into Paul and discipled Paul. Paul was one of these unique apostles that were set apart after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. What did they do? They did a lot of things. They preached the gospel. They taught the church, the word, and prayer. They worked miracles, supernatural things happened through their hands. They built up leaders for the church. But here was the one thing that really set them apart. These first apostles, God set apart, and he used them to write the word of God that you and I now call the New Testament. James Boyce said it this way. An apostle was one appointed by the Lord to be a recipient and authenticator of the New Testament revelation. 
This is important because it means that the book Paul wrote is not to be regarded as other books written by mere men or women, but as God's own revelation. It is from God. Meaning as we study this letter to the church at Ephesus, let me tell you what this is. This is not the words of Paul by himself. This is not the words of just a leader in the church. This is the very word of God himself to us. That's why Paul opened the letter this way. He says to them, hey, you don't need to read this with authority because of who I am. You don't need to read this with authority because of all that I've done. You don't even read this with authority because of all that I've sacrificed. You need to read this with authority because I am an apostle. This is the word of God, which means that this letter is not only relevant for us today because of the similarities between Las Vegas and Ephesus, This letter is relevant for us today because the ultimate author of this letter is God himself and he exists outside the parameters of time. He's eternal. Here's what that means. He can see tomorrow as clearly as he sees yesterday. It's one thing to say, well, yeah, Paul, I appreciate what you've written, but a lot's changed since you wrote this. But listen, the one who wrote this, who inspired this through the life of the Apostle Paul is God himself, and God exists outside the parameters of time, which means he sees 2018 as clearly as he sees 53 AD. He sees the beginning of time and the end of time all at the same time, and because God is that sovereign today, we can lean into this letter and have confidence that it is the word of God for us. And as we read this letter, we glean truth that can be applied to our lives. You say, ah, that's a lot of weight on the word apostle. Well, let me show you what another apostle wrote about it. Turn over in your Bible to 2 Peter chapter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter is another one of the apostles that wrote part of the New Testament. In 2 Peter 1.16, look what it says up here on the screen. Peter says, for we, who's we? The apostles. We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Here's what he's saying. Hey, when we write this stuff down and give it to you, we're not just giving you some folklore that's been passed down through the generations. We're not just handing out some fable, some tale, some story that somebody told us. Peter said, we all saw it. We were eyewitnesses. We walked with Jesus. We personally experienced it. But then look what he goes on to say. He said, I'll give you an example. For when when, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. What's he talking about? He's talking about what happened in Mark chapter 9. We call it the experience of the Mount of the Transfiguration. What happened on the Mount of Transfiguration? Jesus, who was God in the flesh, but Jesus lived his life clothed with humanity. On the Mount of Transfiguration, he invited three of the apostles, Peter, James, and John, up onto a mountain, and Jesus allowed his humanity, to the veil of his humanity to be pulled back, and Jesus allowed his glory the glory of God to be seen in fullness in Christ. Peter, James, and John saw Christ in all his glory, and they were so overwhelmed, they bowed their head to the ground in fear of the glory of God in Christ. But more than that, 
Mark 9 goes on to tell us they also saw Moses and Elijah who'd both been dead a really long time. Moses and Elijah appeared in glory on the mountain talking with Jesus. And if all that's not enough, while they're witnessing Jesus talk to Moses and Elijah in all his glory, God the Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Anybody else but me would like to have been there to have seen all that? Look what Peter goes on to say. Verse 18, we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter says, we we saw this, we heard it, we experienced it. But look at verse 19. So, we have the prophetic word made. Say the next two words out loud. More Sure. What's that mean? Here's what Peter says. Listen. We witnessed Jesus personally. We saw Moses and Elijah talking to him. We heard a voice of God from heaven. But Peter said, what we're writing to you in these letters is even A more sure word than if you heard the voice of God from heaven. That's what Peter said. Peter said, we saw it. Look what he goes on to say. Verse 19. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay. You better pay attention to what we're writing down because what we're writing down today is an even more sure word from God that if you'd experienced hearing the audible voice of God, you say, how can that be? Here's how it can be. If you heard a voice today, what's the first question you got to answer? Who's that? When you read this book, You don't have to ask that question. This is the word of God. That's why look what Peter goes on to say in verse 20. He said, but know this. First of all, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. The word interpretation means to originate, to to, to be born, to, to come from, to be sent forth. Peter says, no Scripture came from us. We didn't come up with this. Verse 21. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from who? God, as we read the writings of the apostles, we're reading the very word of God. John MacArthur wrote about this text. Listen to what John MacArthur said. He said, Peter was describing an event that may have been the most spectacular spiritual experience of his life. May have been, really? I think, I think the Mount of Transfiguration is probably up there. But look what he goes on to say. This was the transfiguration of Christ. When our Lord appeared in his full glory, Peter heard the voice of God and saw Moses and Elijah face to face. Best of all, he got a preview of Christ in his glory. This was not a dream or vision. It was not an impression in Peter's mind or a figment of his imagination. It was real life. He saw it with his own eyes. He heard it with his own ears. He heard the voice of God with his own ears. He was there in person with other apostolic witnesses. There was nothing subjective about his experience. Yet... Peter goes on to say, 
that even what he heard with his own ears and saw with his own eyes was not as authoritative as the eternal word of God contained in the scriptures. You and I have a more sure word today. And here's what that means. As we study the book of Ephesians, we are hearing God speak into our lives. And so being, as we bring our lives into submission to the truth that we hear revealed in the letter to the Ephesian church, you and I are embracing by faith the abundant life that Christ so freely promised us. It's as we submit ourselves to God's truth that God blesses and gives us the life that he's promised. That's why Paul closed this greeting by saying grace to you. As you read these words, grace to you and peace. Paul knew that they had grace from God. And because they had grace from God, they now enjoyed peace with God. And they were able to experience the peace of God every day. So this letter can be trusted. Second thing I want you to see in this opening of this letter is that this letter will be encouraging and challenging. It's going to be encouraging, but it's also going to be challenging. And Paul's opening of this letter and describing the people here that he's writing to, he really gives us an outline of the entire letter. The letter here of Ephesians is really broken down into two parts. And Paul, in the opening section here, the opening sentence, gives us an outline of these two parts. And let me give them to you and we'll be done. Number one, this letter will give us encouraging truth about our position in Christ. That's the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. Chapters 1 through 3 are filled with encouraging truth about who we are in Christ. And he opens the letter by giving us a statement. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the, don't miss this word, saints. Oh, I know it's football season, but he's not talking about the New Orleans saints. To the saint. Oh, he must be talking to a special class of Christian here. This letter is addressed to the saints. Who are these saints? Well, the word saint is a very misunderstood word today in Christianity. There are two ways we typically use the word saint, and neither of them is the way Paul was using it. For starters, Webster's Dictionary defines saint like this. It's one officially recognized as preeminent for holiness, one of the spirits of the departed in heaven. So Webster would tell us that a saint is somebody who's dead, but because of their incredible holy life, they've now been recognized officially by the church, and because they live such a holy life, now that they're dead, we're going to give them this title and call them a saint. That's what Webster would say. Now, that's not the way Paul uses it, nor is that discovered anywhere in the New Testament. Here's a second way the word saint is often used today. You get around somebody that is really godly, and we'll define it like Macmillan's Dictionary. Macmillan's Dictionary says a saint is one who is very kind, very patient, very helpful. So you get around somebody that's really godly, and you say, whoa, they're like a saint. But that's not the word that Paul is using here. Paul uses this word saint nine times in this letter speaking of every Christian in the church at Ephesus. And hear me, 
none of them were dead. They were so not dead, they were still getting mail. How do you know that? Paul wrote them a letter. They weren't dead. They were alive. They were so alive, the postman knew where to find them. Paul sends them this letter. Not only were they not dead, they weren't perfect people either. Because the first three chapters tell us about who we are in Christ. The last three chapters is instruction on how they're to live. They had a lot to work on in this community of believers. These were not people you get around them and go, man, they got it all together. No, they weren't perfect, nor were they dead. And who are these saints? Well, it's interesting. Paul doesn't just use this word in Ephesus. Paul actually uses this word saints 42 times. To describe all of us as Christians in the New Testament. You know what that means? You're a saint. Let me put an encouraging reality up here on the screen. I want you to hear this. You and I are saints. I want you to say this out loud. You ready? One, two, three. You and I are saints. How about that? I want you to look at the person next to you. (laughs) I know for some of you it's going to be tough, all right? Because you came here with them this morning and you're not thinking this. (laughs) But I want you to look at the person next to you and I want you to say whether you know them or not, you are a saint. Go ahead. All right, I didn't say begin a conversation. I just said (laughs) look at them and say you're a saint. It's what the Bible says. It's what Paul says about us. When you think about this word saint, it's the Greek word hagios. Let me show you other English words that are used in the New Testament to translate this word. You ready? Here they are. Holy. Meaning this. What Paul wrote is, he wrote, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to all the holy ones in Ephesus. Look at the next one. Say this one out loud. <laughs> you thought you had a hard time looking at them telling them they're a saint. Let's look at each other and say, you are a person. No, we're not even going to make you do I don't know that we have enough faith to go there this morning, right? But, but what Paul literally is writing is, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to all the perfect ones in Ephesus. Perfect, without blemish, pure, blameless, clean. And I know what you may be thinking, Pastor. I had a hard time with it when you said I'm a saint. When I see all these words, not only do I not think the person next to me qualifies, I don't think I qualify. How can you say that we are saints? Here's how. Paul is here not referring to the way I live my life. Paul is referring to my standing before God in Christ. Paul here is not speaking about what I do. Paul is speaking about who I am in Christ. Let me show it to you in another place. Let me show it to you. Colossians chapter 1. 
Colossians and Ephesians are sister letters. They really go together because Paul wrote Colossians first, and then Paul expanded on the content of the letter to the Colossian church and wrote this letter to the Ephesian church that was known as a circular letter to be sent throughout all Asia Minor to all the churches. So in Colossians, we get some insight into what Paul means here. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. Look what it says. And although you were formally alienated and hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds. Paul said, hey, let me tell you who you used to be. You used to be alienated from God. You used to have no relationship with God. Your sin cut you off from God. You didn't have a right standing before God. You didn't deserve God. You didn't deserve heaven. You didn't deserve to call him father. You were alienated. And not only that, you were hostile in your mind. And you were engaged in evil deeds. Paul said, that's who you used to be. Oh, but look what he says next. Yet he, Jesus, read this out loud, has now Let me ask you a question. Is that present tense or past tense? It's past tense, right? Has now reconciled. He didn't say is now reconciling. He said has now reconciled. Here's what that means. What he's describing here is not something being done. What he's describing here is something that is already done. And it's not done by you and me. This is not only in the passive or in the uh, in the, uh, the the passive tense. It's in the passive voice here, which means it's not something that you and I are doing ourselves. It's something that was done for us. Meaning, when he's talking about here what's been done, he's talking about something that he has already done for us in Christ. What did he do? Look what it says. He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order. To present you now, how? Holy and what? And what? Here's what you used to be, but now in Christ, here's who you are. Here's what happened. On the cross, Jesus took all of your sin and all of my sin, past, present, and future. You see, he can take all my sins in the future. Listen, you better hope he can. All your sin was in the future when he died on the cross. All of it. He took all your sin, past, present, future, and on the cross, let me tell you what Jesus did. He became sin for us. He died in our place, but he didn't stay dead. He was raised from the dead. God accepted his sacrifice for our sins so that now you and I can put, even though we were hostile towards God, even though we were alienated from God, Jesus loved us. He died for us. We can now put our faith and trust in Jesus. And the moment we do, we are born again into the family of God and we are declared in Christ right perfect, holy, without blemish, without spot. We are saints in the kingdom of God. Paul is not writing about necessarily what's coming out of my life yet. He's writing about my position in Christ. I've now been made right with God because of Jesus. Here's what that means. After you've been in heaven for 10,000 years... You won't be any more holy before God than you are right now. You know why? Because right now you're as holy as Jesus himself. You say, I don't deserve that. You're right. We don't. That's why it's called grace. 
God giving us what we don't deserve. By grace, I've been given a right standing before God. God sees me as perfect and as righteous and as holy. I don't think you're getting it. Let me show you. Let me show you. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to get here in a couple of months, all right? Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes about it. Listen to what he says. He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, what does it say? Made us. Not is making us, right? Made us, what? Alive together with Christ. By grace you are being saved. No, by grace you what? Have been saved. How saved are we? And he's already raised us up with him. And done what? And seated us with him. Where? In the heavenly places in Christ. Let me tell you how saved you are. You're so saved positionally, you're already seated in the heavenly places in Christ before the Father. Meaning this, heaven is not what I hope to get when I die. I'm so saved positionally, I'm already there. Do I deserve that? No, but the grace of God in Christ has given me that position. And for three chapters, Paul is going to teach us about who we now are in Christ. And it's going to encourage us. But here's the second thing and the last thing we're going to talk about. Paul is also going to give us challenging truth about our walk with Christ. The first three chapters, he's going to identify who we are in Christ We're going to understand all that is ours because of Christ. But then in chapter 4, verse 1, he shifts with the word, therefore. He says, now I'm going to talk to you about your walk. Because here's what happens. Who we are in Christ begins to be lived out in our day-to-day walk with Christ. And Paul's going to challenge us. Where do you see that in verse 1 of chapter 1? He said, Paul, apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints. But then he says, to the saints who are faithful. Here's their position. They're saints. Here's their lifestyle, their practice. They're faithful. The word faithful is a word that has two meanings. It means to exercise faith, but it also means to continue in the faith. Meaning this. These were men and women of God who had put their faith in Jesus and were now by faith allowing Christ to live through them. Here's a big mistake we make in Christian circles. Yeah, I know I can't save myself, and we're going to talk about that as we walk through Ephesians, that salvation is all a work of God by grace through faith. It's all a gift from Him. But we think now that God saved me by grace... Now it's up to me to begin to try hard to live the Christian life. God's done so much for me. Now it's up to me to try to live in such a way to please him. Let me ask you a question. If that's your mentality, how's that working out for you? Because let me tell you what. When I bring it on myself to try to live the Christian life in such a way that I could be deemed faithful, let me tell you what always happens to me. I fall flat on my face. One step forward, two steps backward. But you see, that's not what Jesus called us to. I'm saved by faith. And now I'm placed in Christ. And now out of the overflow of my faith relationship with him, Christ begins to live his life through me. 
And that's what Paul's going to teach us in Ephesians chapter 4. Let me show you. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22. Just give you a, just to whet your appetite a little bit. Listen to what he said. He says in verse 22, that in reference to your former manner of life, the way you used to live, you lay aside the old self. Day by day, we lay aside that old self that we used to be, he said, which is being corrupted in, a, in accordance with the lust of deceit. And he says, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and you put on the new self. You see, day by day, moment by moment, I lay aside that old self by faith that is being corrupted and getting worse. And day by day, by faith, I grab hold of the new self. Who's that? It's Christ. How do you know? Look what he says. He says, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness. It's the very likeness. It's the image of Christ being pressed out in and through my life. Faithfulness is not found in you and I trying hard to live for Jesus. Faithfulness is found and experienced as we allow Christ by faith to live his life through us. That's not just semantics. It's a radical difference. Warren Wiersbe said it this way. He said, the believer is identified with Christ. He or she is in Christ. And therefore is able to draw upon the wealth of Christ for his or her own daily living. So what you're going to notice as we walk through this letter, when we get to the second half, the whole first half of this letter, Paul's going to talk to us about who we are in Christ. And we're going to be encouraged. Man, you're going to be encouraged. The greatest thing that happened to most of us as believers is if we just begin to understand who we are in Christ. It's going to encourage you. But then Paul's going to challenge us that who we are in Christ should begin to change how we live every day and he's going to talk to us about our relationships with one another our relationships with people in our city he's going to talk to us about our marriage our children our work relationships he's going to talk to us about how we deal with sin in our lives how we face spiritual warfare all paul's going to say man who you are in christ is going to change the way you walk with christ so i'll close with this quote by martin lloyd jones writing about ephesians listen to what he said Martin Lloyd-Jones said, let me emphasize also that this is not a letter addressed to some unusual and exceptional Christian people. It is not a letter addressed to some great scholar or theologian. It is not a letter addressed to teachers. It is not a letter addressed to specialists, but a letter to ordinary church members. That is, from every standpoint, a most important observation. And for this reason, everything the apostle says here about Christians and members of churches must therefore be equally meant for each and every one of us all. You see, because this is a book written by God himself through the Apostle Paul, it's not just true for the church in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. Every word of it's true for you and me today. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would take your word and teach us today. Lord, that you would speak, that you would inspire, that you would convict, that you would draw us to yourself. And I'm going to ask right now that Christians all over the building, that you would just begin talking to God about what he's shared with you. Maybe through his word this morning, God's shown you some truth. And I just want you to just begin to have a conversation with God there in your own heart. But there's some of you here today, and you're not a Christian yet. You haven't come to know Jesus personally. Maybe you're here because somebody invited you. Maybe you're here because you got something in the mail. Maybe you just saw a church and decided to wander in. First of all, let me just say I'm, we're thrilled that you're here. 
And maybe you're hearing some of this and you're thinking, Pastor, I'm not only not a saint positionally, I, I, practically, I, I, none of that stuff's true. I've never come to know Jesus. I don't know what you're talking about. Listen, that's okay. I was right where you are in 1989. I was a freshman in college attending the University of North Alabama. I didn't know God either. And I heard the good news that God loved me so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for me so that I could be forgiven of my sin and be given a right standing before him. And I want you to know something. God loves you too. God loves you so much that he gave Jesus to die so that your sin could be forgiven and you could be made right with God. And if you've never embraced Jesus by faith as the Lord and Savior of your life, today is the day for you to be saved. When we stand in a moment and begin to sing this final song of worship, we have pastors here all along the front. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, when we stand, listen, the people around you will be thrilled to let you out. You just slip out from where you're going to be standing. Come to one of these pastors. Here's all you got to say. I need Jesus. That's it. If you forget that, just stand here. We'll take it from there. You just come. And we'll have somebody sit down and open a Bible and show you how you can begin a personal relationship with God today. Just come. So all you got to do is come. Others of you are already Christians. And maybe God's spoken to you and you just want to come and get in one of these altars and just be alone with God and talk with God. Or maybe... There's something in your job, your health, your family, a relationship, and you just want one of our pastors to pray with you. We'd be honored to pray with you and for you. You just come this morning. That's why we're here. During this time of worship, let's be sensitive and respond. If you need Christ, my prayer is that you come to Jesus today. Lord, over the next few moments as we worship, I pray first of all for people here that don't know Jesus. God, I pray that right now you'd give them the boldness to leave their seat and come to one of these pastors and say, I need Christ. I pray today they know what it is to be forgiven and to be right with you. Lord, I pray for believers today that need to be encouraged or challenged. God, I pray that, God, you would speak to our hearts. And Lord, give us freedom to respond in this moment of worship. Lord, we want to meet with you right now. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.